0: Hey, good morning, Gospel Hope, and man, we are super excited to be here today for a brand new series that we're calling Reconciled from the book of Philemon. And uh, we're really excited for a couple of reasons. First of all, the format. As you see, it's, it's usually just Rod or I standing here. And so Batman and Robin are both here this morning. Uh, crime crime uh, criminals beware, we are coming for you. Uh, but the, the idea is simply this. About a year ago, we had the idea of talking about the concept of racial reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And and we thought it would be really helpful for our church not to just hear from one or the other of us, Mm -hmm. but for both of us. So we're going to give this a whirl. Um, I think Rod and I are excited and a little bit nervous about it, but we're going to see how it goes. And I hope this will be an encouragement to you. Second reason we're really excited about studying the book of Philemon together and this idea of reconciliation is it's so relevant for today. Man, if you've been following the news or current events at all, I think what you're going to find is what this book speaks to is really timeless, and it's incredibly relevant for the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. So I hope you're encouraged through this study. We're excited to share with you, and we're praying that the Lord will really use this in the life of our church.
1: So, Rod, would you kick us off with a word of prayer, and then let's jump right in? Absolutely. Father God, we come before you um, today, and we are so thankful for the precious and beautiful word that you preserve for us. Mm. But we also thank you, Lord God, for this precious strategic moment in the life of the body that you would allow me and Ryan to serve together, Lord God, Mm. uh, in this really unique way. And hopefully, Lord God, our hearts and the way that we walk with one another displays the reconciling hope of the gospel. And we just pray that we would lead our congregation in that and pray, Lord God, that this message today would establish just a a trajectory for not only us, but for our congregation and for all those, Lord God, that would come near us uh, to pursue the unique opportunity of reconciliation that's available in you and only through Mm. you and the gospel. And so, Lord God, uh, bless our time together now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, just to start us off, I wanna invite you into yet another one of those zany stories from my childhood. Um, Growing up in this little area in in Birmingham, we called some part of it's called Pratt City, but the neighborhood was called Smithfield Estates. There was a group of us, a large group of us and new families that moved to that area in the 1970s, that is our our parents did. And so you had all these kids that were growing up roughly around the same age. We all went to the same elementary school and all went to the same middle school. Well, something interesting happened around the third grade and we could have never predicted this, and no one told us to do this. But of all the kids who lived in this particular community, while we all went to school together and had all grown up together, we found ways to suddenly divide ourselves. That is, all the people who lived in the Smithfield Estates subdivisions, which were traditional homes, uh, kind of clustered together as a little bit of a crew. And then there was another group of guys just up the hill who lived in an area called Daniel Payne Apartments, which was, I mean, we could see each other every day and walk together from uh, home from school every day, and they were in the apartments and they kind of clustered together in a little bit of a crew. Over time, very short period of time, animosity grew between these two crews, but why? There wasn't a news broadcast, there wasn't a channel, there wasn't anyone who came on a loudspeaker in our neighborhood and said, we want all the guys from Daniel Payne to fight the boys from Smithsville Estates, but nevertheless, third graders, fourth graders, and fifth graders alike. We band together, not just around the commonalities of where we live, this arbitrary commonality that we had, but then we also began to move with conflict toward one another. There was even sub-conflicts that would exist within Smithfield Estates from the boys who lived down the hill to the boys up the hill. So whether it was sandlocked football competitions where we were literally trying to knock each other's teeth out, uh, stone and rock fights that we would have in (laughs) these open fields or whether it was an actual fist fight, Mm -hmm. where we were going at each other, Mm -hmm. these things naturally started to happen just because of where we live. Some Mm -hmm. up the hill, some down the hill, some in traditional homes, and some in apartments. Mm -hmm. Which lets us know that even without instruction, without prompting, without any policies, without any politics, people naturally group themselves together in ways that actually not see community, but adverse kinds of, Community against other communities and so it was a, just an interesting dynamic of what happened in our neighborhood yeah for sure
0: and, and that's just a human reality isn't it, it yeah. sadly we tend towards tribalism yeah. uh, that is we we get around people who are like us and then we look at people that don't fit whatever category that is and we kind of look down our nose or stiff-arm them and right. that's just a natural tendency of the fallen human heart and you can see it from the playground to the break room it's evident in our political parties. It's it's clear in even our social gatherings. And sadly, uh, it's true in the church.
1: Absolutely. Where
0: yes. sometimes we can value our you know personal worship style or the comfortability of how we do church, even over kingdom unity. And if you've had a pulse for the last six months or so, you know that these rifts are all over the place in our country. Um, we're divided racially. It's clear from the tension that, like, it's almost in the air you breathe. Like yeah. it, you just feel it everywhere. It's, it's clear in the elections coming up, we're divided politically. All the mudslinging and demonization of those who don't think or vote like we do. And, and, and we're even divided generationally, where it seems like younger generations look down on older generations, and older generations look down on younger generations, and rather empathy ruling the day. It's really this hermeneutic of
1: misunderstanding. It is, absolutely. And and no matter who seems to occupy the podiums from a politics standpoint or any policies that are recommended, if you look throughout American history, um, there seems to be no policy that can unite us. Mm. Consider this for a moment, just a brief walk through American history. The Emancipation Proclamation you thought would have unified. It was was a good thing. We needed to free the slaves. That was a great moral wrong. But the emancipation, while it freed the slaves, didn't unite people. It actually gave birth to another evil, which was segregation. Mm. And then, once the nation decided to pass policy and law to rid us of segregation, you thought that would have produced some level of unity, but it didn't. So, after integration, we then came up with other legalized ways to discriminate. Mm. Following the eras of discrimination, we then had to come up with new policy affirmative action to try to make sure that all ethnic groups and, and uh, races and, and, and uh, also genders are fairly and equitably represented in all uh, uh, portions of corporate America, but even affirmative action, as positive as a policy as it was intended to be, has produced a backlash of reverse discrimination and even resentment amongst other groups that may have felt excluded in that process. Mm. So what was the next iteration of policy? diversity and inclusion. You can't go anywhere today when anybody talk about diversity and inclusion initiatives. And what has that done? Intended to be a net positive, and I'll say it has been had a positive effect, but it wasn't able to produce human unity. Because after you get diversity and inclusion fully uh, uh, in place, what we end up with is identity idolatry. Mm -hmm. Everybody is super focused on their particular identity, Mm -hmm. and and identity becomes becomes idolized, and then we get identity politics. So all of these four great major historical policies have not been able to produce human unity. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I believe this is the case is because unless the truth grab holes of our hearts, our hearts can always find loopholes in the policy, Yeah. yeah. right? And so, I mean, look at this. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. For in those days declared the Lord, I will write my laws on their hearts and on their minds, Mm. and I will be their God and they will be my people. The deal is the Bible seems to intimate that unless those things are written on our hearts, No policy, no piece of paper, and no political group can ever bring us real unity. Mm. It's only God who can do that. And this is terrible.
0: Yeah. And and as good-hearted or as well-intentioned as certain policies are, they never get deep enough into our hearts, just like you said there. And and Mm. and the reality is this. Our our world has no solution to the problem of division. Uh, And and I'm not saying that kind of casts judgment on anything, but it is a difficult problem, and nobody has been able to solve it. And that's why the book of Philemon is so, so relevant. Yeah. Because in this text, you meet two people who who seem to be very, very different individuals. First of all, uh, we meet Philemon, who is the recipient of this letter, and apparently a personal friend of the Apostle Paul. It seems like Paul stayed at his house and all kinds of things there, so there's this close relationship. What is more, Philemon seems to be a, a generous and godly believer in Christ mm-hmm. who even host a church in his house in the city of Colossae. Yeah. Then entered the scene Onesimus, and and here is, as they say, the plot thickens. Onesimus was a runaway slave, or a bond servant, more on this in a moment, mm-hmm. um, of guess who? Yeah, that's right, Philemon, Philemon. And, and so here you have this crazy, crazy scenario where Onesimus runs away from Philemon, and somehow in God's providence, works his way all the way to Rome, and lands here in prison, or meets Paul while under house arrest, Paul shares Christ with Onesimus. Mm -hmm. Onesimus becomes a brother, and then Paul says to Onesimus, hey, man, you need to head on back home and get this relationship reconciled. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful picture of the power of the gospel. Talk about turn of events. And, and And it points to the big idea of the book of Philemon, namely this. For those in Christ, though reconciliation is often improbable, it is never impossible. Let me say that again. For those in Christ, though reconciliation is often improbable, it is never impossible. But before we unpack that fully, there's a couple of things that we wanted to share with you, just some clarifying remarks to make sure that we really benefit fully from the book
1: of Philemon here. Can you believe it? That one of the foremost texts to help us to appreciate reconciliation actually has in the background, one of the most hideous institutions that we're familiar with in Western culture, which is that of slavery. Many people look at the book of Philemon and say to themselves that this is one of the places where the Bible is soft on slavery or the Bible uh, encourages slavery. And that couldn't be further from the truth. There's a couple of things that I wanna make sure we note when looking at this text, as we take into consideration this unique relationship between Onesimus and Philemon and the unique differences between slavery as we know it or heard of it here in the West. First of all, whenever you hear the word slavery uh, in English, it's actually the Greek word doulos. Now what's interesting about that term is that's the same term that the Lord Jesus used to refer to himself in relationship to his father and his mission and it's also the same term that the disciples and all those who followed Christ as apostles used to define their dedication to the father and their deep service to the church so in the ancient New Eastern world the term doulos that is translated servant in some places and slave in another is not a dirty word like it is for us in the Western culture because every time we hear the word servant or slave we always interpret it through the lens of antebellum and that is the the, the growth Task version or whatever slavery that took place here. But I want to make sure we understand that slavery in the Ancient Near East, or servitude in the Ancient Near East, took on quite a different tone. It was not anything like what we had here in America. There's three or so distinctives that I want to give you to help you do your own study and compare what we see in the Bible that is deemed as servitude and what we saw here in America. Those three distinctives are these, involuntary, indefinite, and insensitive. American slavery was involuntary, indefinite, and insensitive. However, looking at slavery through the biblical lens, it was never involuntary. As a matter of fact, in Exodus chapter 21, looking at verse 16, the Lord specifically says to Israel, whoever steals a man and sells him, takes a person against their own will and sells him, and anyone that is found in possession of him shall be put to death mm. so to involuntarily take a person from their homeland is a capital offense mm. uh, under the biblical under the biblical halo or the biblical coverage here of this topic of slavery but not only was uh, slavery in the united states involuntary as opposed to here in the bible it's voluntary because someone perhaps owed a debt that they could not pay mm. and they chose to put themselves under the servitude of another to work for a finite period of time to work off that that indebtedness. Which brings us to the next element. So American slavery was involuntary. People were stolen. Mm -hmm. American slavery was indefinite. There was no end in sight except for the providence of God and moving on the heart of of Abraham Lincoln to put in place the Emancipation Proclamation. But prior to that, a person could live and die in slavery. Mm -hmm. Not so in the Bible. In the Bible, according to Exodus chapter 21, verse 2, slavery, debt slavery, or selling oneself into servitude to another, was a, had a maximum cap of seven years, mm-hmm. and that person had to be freed, unless, of course, the person who was being in servitude thought that they would love life with their master rather than they would a life of poverty or whatever that they were going into. And we even hear the Apostle Paul refer to himself as a lifetime bond servant of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so the Bible writers step into the same language and use it to describe their servitude to God. But there's a third one, which I think is important. American slavery was highly insensitive to human rights. In the Bible, in Exodus chapter 21, verse 26, it says that if a man were to strike the eye of a slave or a servant, his male servant, and destroys it, he is to be let to, to be going, to go free. If he knocks out a tooth, he is to go free, and he shall also th- that person's indebtedness is done. So, in the biblical idea of servitude, indentured servitude or voluntary servitude. A hurt servant was fully compensated and fully emancipated. Mm -hmm. Now, can you imagine if slavery of the US type, the shadow slavery, where human beings were property, had followed just those three basic rules? It wouldn't have been able to exist, because it was based on horror insensitive human rights violations it was involuntary kidnapping Mm -hmm. and so that's not what we see in the bible and i hope for those that are listening to this that you'll go back and do your own research and understand that while the relationship between onesimus and philemon bears some similar language that we know it's not the same logistics that we had here in the u.s Mm Well, one might ask the question, if that's the case, Rod, why was the Bible used to validate slavery? Why was it such a central piece in keeping people enslaved? And the answer is this, is that a fallen heart can always come up with faulty hermeneutics. Mm. When our hearts are wrong toward God, we can always look at the Bible and find a way to justify our sin, which is part of the reason that we get a chance to sit at these tables and talk about the deep need for reconciliation. But another thing is this. Paul expected something very powerful and very public to happen. And it's this: Paul expected reconciliation to be a public activity and not just a private affair. Yeah. How do we know that? When you look at Philemon uh, verses 1 and 2, he not only addresses the book to Philemon and all those who are at the house church, but he expects it to be read publicly. Yeah. So the church is actually invited into this. And as you would say often, the whole church is invited into the fight for reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Not just this personal you know, clandestine meeting between Onesimus or between Paul and Philemon saying, hey, let my boy, you know, have some slack, you mm-hmm. know, and I'll repay his debt. No, the whole church was invited into this call to reconciliation. Yeah. Oh, that's so helpful, Rod. And, and
0: all of that, all that backdrop kind of leads us to where we're going this morning. And it's simply this, we must find unity in Christ. Nothing else will work. Right. There's no hope for real and lasting reconciliation apart from Jesus and his work to bring sinners together. You might hear that and say, but Ryan, that sounds well and good, but come on, man. I mean, look at our society, look at our culture, look at where we're at right now. Isn't that just some sort of religious platitude that you and Rod have to say because you're pastors? Well, perhaps, or perhaps not. Because it sure seemed to me that when you read the book of Philemon, Paul, the apostle, the apostle of Jesus Christ, believed that true unity was possible pause and consider for just a minute. There were some extremely high walls between Onesimus and Philemon. I mean, this was a relationship that was fraught with tension. And yet, as you read the epistle, it seems like Paul was convinced that real reconciliation was going to happen. It wasn't just like maybe. He was like, Mm. he knew that something was going to happen. So much though that he writes in verse 22, catch this, prepare a guest room for me. Since I hope that through your prayers, I will be restored to you. In other words, Paul is so confident that he's like, hey, man, get the guest room ready. I'll be back. He didn't think this relationship was going to be in jeopardy. Yeah. He thought Philemon was going to respond to his pleas. Man, yeah. Rod, do you remember um, when the Berlin Wall came down? Yeah. I, I mean, for, for people like us that grew up in the 80s and the early 90s, I remember that being like a... It, it was a cataclysmic event in one sense because we yeah. had kind of been raised under the era, the cloak of the Cold War, as it were. Right. And there was always this, you know, unspoken, uh, strong tension between communism and the rest of the free world. And mm-hmm. there was always this tension. And then one day, this symbol of communism gets torn down. I remember the wrecking balls coming through. and yeah. I mean, it was an amazing moment. And, and here's the thing I want us to remember that the gospel has wrecking ball power to tear down walls of division. Uh, That's part of the beauty of the work of Christ. And time and time again, when you read through the New Testament, you see the gospel's power to just destroy division. For instance, Colossians chapter 3, verse number 11. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. All. Or again, over in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, here you see the wrecking ball analogy very plainly. For he is our speak peace, that's speaking of Jesus, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hospil- hostility. Uh, so if the gospel has power to unite and reconcile Philemon and Onesimus, Brothers and sisters, it still has that type of power today. It can reconcile progressives and conservatives. It can reconcile blacks and whites. It can reconcile men and women. It can reconcile millennials and boomers. The gospel has power to tear down walls of hostility. So how does that work? How does the gospel achieve that unity? It's that question that we wanna answer here briefly in the next few moments and point out Three ways that the gospel has power to display reconciling hope. See what I did there? Reconciling hope. That's our church. Okay, good, good. So, Rod, take us through it. The reconciling hope of the gospel.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the first things that we cannot miss by reading the Bible, and definitely not by reading uh, as we read the book of Philemon, is that the gospel unifies. The gospel unifies. Uh, But on what terms? How does it unify? And What evidence do we have? If you were to read through uh, Philemon, In those 25 verses, you have all kinds of language being used, but there is no language that is more prevalent than family language. Mm. Eight times we hear the Apostle Paul use the terms, my brother, or use the term father, use terms like son. This familial language, Mm. and is it just window dressing? No. I would suggest that based on the next word that appears more times than any other, which is the word love. Mm. So in combination with all these familial terms, you have Paul not only referring to people as sisters and brothers and partners and and fathers and coming to stay at their guest house, Mm. but then he says there is a unique kind of love that exists amongst us that I want to be preserved. And that family language and that family love leads us to live real and authentic family life. One of the evidences of it is found in chapter, excuse me, in verse eight and uh, verses eight through 10. Look at Paul's words when he appeals to Philemon on this issue. He says, Accordingly, though I may be bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Mm. The Apostle Paul, I don't know if you saw this, said I could pull rank in Jesus. I could pull rank in generation because I'm an old guy. I could pull rank in situation because I'm a you know I'm a prisoner. You know, surely I got some clout here. But of all the cards that I could pull, man, I want to appeal to you based on love mm. that you would receive my son who I beget in the faith. I'm a father to him. Would you do that? And so the gospel unifies because it calls us into the family of God. And it's not just language, it's real life. Romans chapter eight, verses 14 and 15 say this, for all who are led by the spirit are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive uh, the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba Father. All of us who place faith in Jesus Christ are immediately adopted into the family of God, Mm -hmm. equal standing with one another and joint heirs with Christ. Mm -hmm. This is actually what God says. This isn't just what pastors say. This is what the Lord has said. And what it tells us is that the kind of unity that God calls us to, real unity that is, is rooted in love and not in legislation. Mm -hmm. Real unity is rooted in love and not legislation because Paul could have legislated to Philemon. He could have commanded him based on his role to do this. But Paul wanted to be love oriented. So when we're spirit-led and love-driven and not legislation oriented, we can pursue and have real unity. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. So the gospel uh, united
0: Paul and Onesimus or I'm sorry, Philemon and Onesimus, but it also did something else. The gospel transforms. Uh, look at verse number 11 where a very very interesting Paul makes here. Look at what it says. Once he was useless to you, that's Onesimus, but now he is useful both to you and to me. Uh, The name Onesimus is, it it actually means useful. So Paul's dad joke game here is very strong. And I'm sure Onesimus probably like rolled his eyes and was like, yeah, Paul, I've never heard that one before. But, But in spite of the pun, Paul is making a powerful, powerful point. Onesimus had been transformed. Mm -hmm. He was useless, and now he is useful. I I don't know what caused maybe Philemon to think of Onesimus that way. I mean, there's speculation that Onesimus might have stole something, and that's why Paul has to say, I'll pay it back. We don't Mm -hmm. know exactly the circumstances, but whatever the case is, the idea is simply this. Onesimus's character, because of the gospel, is now different. And if you need proof of that, all you got to do is read the next verse. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. I am sending him back to you. I'm sending my very own heart. In other words, okay, we, we got to get our minds around this little concept here. The letter of Philemon, this letter written to Onesimus' master, mm-hmm. Philemon, is most likely delivered in the hand of Onesimus himself. He has successfully got away Mm -hmm. from Colossae, made the almost 2,000-mile journey to Rome. And then Paul says, you ought to go back. And Onesimus goes home. I mean, now that's transformative power. I mean, what would drive him to do that other than something inside of him that happened? The, The principle is this. Christ not only does something for us, he does something in us. You see, trusting in the gospel changes your destiny and it changes your character. You know, have you ever seen, Rod, in any of these house flipping shows? Oh yeah. Yeah, um, my, my daughter right now, Sydney, is, is fairly obsessed with those. So any real estate professionals, if you need an assistant, Sydney is your girl. She is watching every one of these flip things. She's got all kinds of information. She's getting an um, education on TV. The principle of these shows is, is, is very simple. It, it, it's simply this, an investor, goes in and purchases, usually some sort of rundown home or a home that's in bad shape. Mm -hmm. I think in one sense that's a picture of what Christ does for us when we get saved. He goes in and he purchases us when our lives are all broken down. He now owns the deed to us and our destiny is secure because we are in the hands of the one who knows what to do. But these investors never just like hold on to the house and just say like, well, that's it, I just now own it. Mm -hmm. No, what they do is they go in and they renovate the entire thing. They they paint and they, change the flow and they remodel the kitchen and they put in new bathrooms and they put on additions and they change the roof and they put landscaping on the front and then you watch the end of the show and the big aha moment is man this doesn't even look like the same place anymore and here's the idea when christ saves us he not only purchased the ownership deed to us but then he renovates our character he changes us from Mm. the inside out yeah our bones may still be the same we may be the same People, but in one sense, we're not anymore because Christ has renovated. The idea is this, Jesus rescues and renovates. Now, the analogy breaks down a little bit because at the end of the show, they usually sell the house and I don't think Jesus is gonna flip us, so (laughs) don't don't worry about that. But friends, transformation. He'll turn the old things over to his father. Well, that's true, that's true. Amen, amen. Let's Uh, lift uh, our hands for a minute. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, okay. Um, But transformation (laughs) has always been God's way. I mean, he took Moses, the ineloquent, and made him the leader and the writer of scripture. He took Esther, the fearful, and made her Esther the bold. Mm. He took Saul, the persecutor, and made him a missionary. Because the reality is this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come, and it is here to stay. And this fills me with hope for reconciliation. Why? Because it means that bitter people can become forgivers. You can change. Hateful people can become gracious. Unkind people can become gentle. And narrow people can become compassionate. There is an ability to change because the gospel transforms. But God doesn't just leave us at
1: that. The gospel even does more. It empowers. That's right. And so how exactly does the gospel empower us? Let's look back at our, our passage. You've already heard how it was that Onesimus went from being useless to useful in a very practical sense, but I also want you to consider the words of Scripture when we are told to walk worthy of the vocation with which we have been called. Mm -hmm. And also to consider how the Bible says that we haven't just been saved from sin uh, to God, but for good works. Mm -hmm. And so we ourselves are empowered to do good works. So we are empowered to ourselves to become more useful in the hands of God, given gifts in order to do things that we could not do in our own strength that will reach far beyond what our practical abilities could produce. But I also want you to take note in verse 16 how the Bible refers to uh, how Onesimus is called, or the appeal is to take Onesimus from being a bondservant to receive him as a brother. Consider for a moment the unique position that Philemon is in. The law is on his side. There's nothing in the culture that prohibits him from receiving Onesimus as a bondservant. And if he is a runaway, who having stole something, he is within his right to receive him back into that role. But it takes power from God to push past the legal and cultural conventions of the day and to receive this man who you might have thought was beneath you to now receive him as a brother. Mm. So to move Onesimus from bondsummer to brother means that there must be power at work within Philemon that teaches him how to love others the same way that he expects himself to be loved. And that's the same thing that Christ called us to do. The third empowering aspect of the gospel is this: Onesimus is returning as a fugitive. He's on. He's been on the run because he was found or met in prison. So he may be an. an, an he may be a fugitive from uh, the home of Philemon, and he is told to be received in, in verses 18 through 20. Receive him now as a fellow worker in the gospel, mm. as a peer in in the faith. This is awesome, and so. The gospel empowers Philemon to forgive even when he has just caused not to. Mm. I want you to consider that. The gospel empowers us to forgive and to receive people in roles and in ways that there is no other compelling force that says that we ought to. As a matter of fact, everything else could be Uh, on our side to hold our current position but the gospel empowers us to go against the grain of culture Mm -hmm. and to forgive and to receive people as our fellow equals and what all this tells us is that the gospel ultimately empowers us to apply to the lives of others the same grace that was extended to us Mm,
0: amen amen so that's that's our hope that we would be a group of people that pursues reconciliation because through the gospel, it really is possible. But you might hear all this and say, man, I, I get it, the gospel unites, the gospel transforms, the gospel empowers. But what does that look like in our daily lives? How can we take some practical steps towards reconciliation? Well, we want to close with just two very practical things that we hope you'll do over the next several weeks to pursue reconciliation in your life. And the first one is this, share a meal. You see, biblical hospitality has tremendous division-crushing power. We see this in the text down in verse number 17 where Paul says this, Welcome Onesimus, okay, the runaway slave, as you would welcome me. Now, I realize that hospitality during the pandemic is complicated, but what we want to encourage you to do is, in a way that you feel appropriate, find a way to spend time with someone who is different from you. Different in any way, politically, economically, ethnically, generationally, ideologically, or any way that you seem fit. Seek to spend intentional time with one another, sharing a meal or a cup of coffee. Maybe it is you are able to go to a park and have a picnic together, or meet virtually on the line for coffee or or tea if that's your jam, whatever. Uh, but the idea is really seek to be in relationship with someone else because, whatever the case, purposefully spending time with other believers remind us of this wonderful truth. Because of Christ our similarities are always far greater than our differences. Because of the work of Jesus, our similarities are always greater than our differences. So I'm gonna do a little exercise to help us remind, be reminded of that. So Rod, can you help me out here? Sure. Can you just say the two words, like me? Like me. Okay, so I'm gonna to point to you and when I do that, you say like me and everybody watching, will you do the same thing? So when we see somebody who is different from us, the first thing we should say, is here is a person made in the image of God. Like me. So this person is similar in that way. Here is a sinner who needs a savior. Like me. And then finally, if this person has trusted in Jesus, here is a child of God through the work of our savior. Like me. And therefore, they happen to be black or white or male or female or rich or poor or conservative or progressive or young or seasoned see i carefully chose my word right there so as not to offend anybody the idea is simply this we have so much common in christ that we should be able to spend time and intentionally cultivate relationship and what happens is this even though you you start at different points with someone else if you sit across the table it reminds you that you are more alike than different and you stop demonizing people who think or look or act differently from you And you usually take a step towards them we're not looking for uniformity Uh, we're not trying to argue that everybody in our church should think the same way about every issue but we are arguing for unity and we believe that's possible by cultivating intentional reconciled
1: relationships so in addition to a shared meal we want to encourage you to also deploy on a shared mission i'll never forget pre-pandemic myself Brady, several other members from our community group and other parts of the church, an erratically diverse group of people, were serving at the safe house. As you know, Brady's white, and I'm not. Brady's young, and I'm, I'm, I have a medium degree of experience. I'm medium season. No, You're not season. heavily seasoned. Yeah, not heavily season. seasoned. Medium seasoned. Yeah. How, however, my dad is heavily seasoned, <laughs> okay. right? He's out there. And so people were coming up to us. We weren't wearing any T-shirts or special garbs, I don't think. And they wanted to know, they were amazed and intrigued by this one thing who are you and where are you from? Mm -hmm. We were trying to size you up because of all of the, you're you're working together, you're treating each other so, not just collegially like you work for the same organization, but you are working together like family, you've got each other's backs, You're, you're helping and doing all these things. Who are you? Mm. And that kind of and, and and what people are intrigued by is the reconciling hope of the gospel. They're getting a glimpse of what it looks like for people who are radically different to come in and commit themselves to doing the same thing. And that's to being kind or to helping this place to, to be clean. But We want to encourage you to share a meal and also look for ways to share a mission. But not just encourage you. We want to provide you with one of those opportunities. So in the comments, there is actually going to be a link for you to register for a shared missions opportunity in one of our local communities Mm. as early as Saturday, October the 3rd. All you have to do is show up. And you'll get basic instructions once you click on the link. But it's a great opportunity for us to come together and do great work together in our community. The event will be fully socially distanced, fully tooled and outfitted. Uh, All things are set up with safety uh, and all the things we're concerned about during the pandemic in mind. But we have a great opportunity, real time, to do something that allows us to have shared meals and shared mission.
0: But we would just want to offer one final pastoral thought as we close. And it's simply this. We wanna be a church that displays the reconciling hope of the gospel. This takes work, it takes effort, but because of the work of Jesus, it really is possible. As John 13 says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And in this divisive time in our culture, Gospel Hope Church has a tremendous, tremendous opportunity to show that the gospel has, pop, has the ability to bring people together that are different has the ability to reconcile relationships deeply and truly. So let's be a church that pursues those ends. Can I pray for us? Father, we love you, and we're so thankful for this wonderful passage of Scripture, how it shapes us, how it transforms us, how it calls us into reconciliation. Give us hope in Jesus. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Pray for you, gospel hope.